You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the transit zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margot Kingston near Wingham on the mid-north coast of New South Wales now. I'm Tim Dunlop, still in South Bank in Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts. The Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beapai peoples of the Port Macquarie region in New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. Hi Tim, hi Margot, great to see your happy smiling faces again <laughs> after... A bit of a hiatus. It's great being on Squadcast, being able to see you all. It's fun. Yeah, it makes a difference, doesn't it? Mm, it's great. Yeah, it echoes what we've all been doing the last eight weeks or so, doesn't it? Talking to people on Zoom. Well, I mean, I know I'm in a Melbourne-centric audience here, but, you know, it's only Melbourne, mate. We've been living the good life in Queensland and New South Wales and really feeling for you guys and, and wondering what on earth's gone wrong with your state government for this to happen. Are we allowed to keep moaning a little bit, Tim? <laughs> um, yeah. A little bit. I'm a mixture of, yes, it was very challenging by the end of it, and I'm, I'm happy that things are opening up. But just looking at what's happening in Europe at the moment, and America's just something different altogether, but even in Europe, which you tend to think of as slightly more sane than the United States, they're all in the process of locking down at the moment. France and Germany both go into very restricted circumstances as of midnight on Friday. So to me, it's kind of looking like the Melbourne thing was a pretty smart thing to do, actually. Oh, absolutely. You can certainly see what happens if you don't put those sorts of measures into place. So I think the Andrews government did a lot wrong, but I think they probably did a lot right as well. And Tim, you're also seeing in places like Turin, in Naples, in Italy, which really got knocked about in the first round of this virus, you're getting big crowds of people objecting to the new restrictions there, and you're getting that in Germany too, and all around Europe, the resistance to the lockdown. I would recommend that if people haven't had a listen yet to Professor John Potter and our special Transit Zone series, he lays out in really explicit epidemiological detail the realities underlying things like the virus itself, how to control it, what happened in New Zealand, how infectious the coronavirus is, and also the very limited outlook, I've got to say at this point, for a vaccine. It's by no means a sure thing. Exactly. One of the things that really kind of blows me away in all of this in this discussion is how little attention is given to the way Asia has responded compared to other areas. And and I'd include Australia and New Zealand in that geographical allocation as well. This region's done pretty well in a way that Europe and the United States hasn't. I think it's kind of telling us something about the ability of governments and societies to respond to these novel circumstances and it's certainly showing up flaws in our system without a doubt but this region has done so much better countries like well obviously china but also in hong kong to the extent that we think of that as a separate place to china taiwan vietnam singapore new zealand have all done so much better than any equivalent country in the northern hemisphere you can add thailand to that list too thailand too yeah 
I just think you've got to separate Australia and New Zealand from Asia because, you know, we had enormous advantages in, in having in our borders and being so far away. I mean, I think we've done a, a good job, but so we should have. Culturally, I, I think what this has shown is that an Asian-style culture, which, which really values the collective or the, the society, even in democracies, especially in democracies, really, they've come together as a people just so much better than America and parts of, of Europe. And, and of course, America is the extreme situation where the individual rights and the government is bad and has gone crazy. So instead of having small government private responsibility, it's small decayed government and this sort of this selfishness, which I think Trump exemplifies that the end game for rampant capitalism is a reality, a worldwide reality show where the kleptocracy masks its evil with a kleptocratic showman whose job is to mesmerise the world. America is showing us what we can all become if we let the system rip without considering income inequality, inclusion, and just a, a love of who we are as, as a people, as, as distinct from individuals. I know I'm not the only one that's been completely obsessed and upset and anxious about the future of democracy and, and future of the free world. And COVID is showing what we've become in bright lights. And now it's, it's up to us to ensure that we strengthen Australia's democracy, strengthen Australia's commitment to, to inclusion and clean up politics and start to insist that politicians represent people in their long-term public interest and don't represent who has bought them. This piece by Tim Dunlop recently in Mianjin about what is a journalist? How can you have a trusting relationship between readers and a journalist where there's no enforceable ethics, where it's all very well to say a journalist has ethics, but most journalists have to do what their bosses say. We have to accept that journalism will lose its role in a democracy as a profession that brings the, the people's problems to the powerful and, and holds the powerful to account. We can forget that and we can be replaced with partisan propaganda media like happening happening in America in, in regional towns. Or we can say actually can't have a great democracy without good journalism and we really need to think about who we are and have a good relationship with our, our readers personally, have our media companies value the pricelessness of trust and get things happening. And, you know, journalism's just my little world and, and Tim's little area of intellectual expertise. But this is happening with, with professions and cultures and industries everywhere now, everywhere. It's such a, an interesting time to be uh, 61. Let's treat that as a prologue. We're going to talk more about the US and about journalism later on in this first episode of Season 2 of The Transit Zone with Margot Kingston and Tim Dunlop and me, Peter Clark. Tim, let's just reflect for a moment. We have been through the mill down here in Melbourne, haven't we? It's been intense, hasn't it? Don't you agree? It's been extraordinary yes. psychologically. Yes, it really has. Like I still feel that personally... I've been reasonably lucky. I work from home anyway. My wife was able to transfer to working from home. We've been here together. We kind of like each other and get on. We haven't been under the pressures that some people have been under, you know, people living alone, etc. Even with all those advantages, the duration and the intensity of the lockdown, it really takes a toll. I'm really glad that it's 
broken. We're having people around, a person, I should say, around for dinner <laughs> tomorrow night. And it's, you know, it's like we're oh, going to the moon or something. It's, right. it's so nice just to be able to do that. All of us, we're social creatures at the end of the day. And to cut us off and isolate us like that, even with the best intentions and, and even with us basically supportive of this kind of response to the pandemic, it takes a toll just talking to people over interfaces like this and seeing how people are talking about it on social media, it's really taken a toll. I think we're going to be living with it for a long time. I remember when we first started these podcasts, we started musing about the things that were going to be permanent. And I certainly think working from home is one. I don't think there's too much doubt about that now. We've seen that shift happen. Retail is another one. I notice that people are talking much more about streaming now. Cinema, people going out and going into a big space together, that's taken a huge kick in the guts. And I think people will be scared and nervous about going back into those shared spaces for quite a long time. Netflix, Amazon, all those people are really upping their streaming presence and cinema has taken a a big kick in the guts to say nothing of live theatre, live music, the arts generally that rely on shared spaces. Early on, you know, when you said that you live near a highway and in the first lockdown, the pricelessness of of no noise, of no cars, and then all the birds flocking in. And remember I said, I reckon there's going to be a big move to the regions. Well, it has happened. I've moved down here and want to buy their sort of semi-rural and I'm just about priced out. So I've put my marker in and and I'm I'm buying a little place. But that is happening all over, all over Australia. And I think people are sitting back and going, do I want to have a quality of life now that I can work from home? And also, I think, some fear. People say, right, I'm planting my veggies now and I've got a bit of self-sufficiency and I've got a bit of space in the country. I've got clean air. I feel a little bit safer than in the, in the cities. I mean, it gets back to what I was saying before about the world is in turmoil here. This COVID could be the push to, to decentralisation that people in rural and regional areas have always craved. We have no idea what that is going to do politically too. If, if that happens. These are very exciting and scary times. For sure. The big news in our part of the world, of course, midst all this that we've been talking about, we won the jackpot because our first granddaughter arrived. It was mid-August. The new cases figures here in Melbourne were about 750 at the time. In other words, she was born at the very peak right. of that pandemic effect here in Melbourne. So what an incredible contrast for us. And I I just thought I'd write a little letter to her because she's only 10 weeks old, 11 weeks old now. We've had very limited contact with her because of the lockdown. That's been quite a painful thing, as you can both imagine, emotionally. Just thought I'd sit down and write her a little letter, and I'll probably write other little letters to her, trying to cast ourselves into the future. Would you like to hear it? Yes, yeah, please. Absolutely. Now, I'm not going to use her name because I'm respecting her privacy. She's just a little one, and she'll get to choose later when she wants to use her name in public. I'll call her M. And you both know her name, of course, and have seen pictures of her. You know how gorgeous yes. she is. Beautiful. She is very gorgeous. Dear Granddaughter M, now you're with us at last in all your lovable, wondrous reality. I've been thinking a lot about later on, when you're old enough to read this, and the stories we can tell you of the times when you were born. Make no mistake, they were tough and demanding times for all of us. Your arrival was like a bright ray of light beamed in by some cosmic follow-spot operator to penetrate the gloom of the pandemic. You've heard us all talk about the lockdown times. When you were born on a Saturday afternoon, 39 years to almost the minute when our daughter, your auntie, was born also on a Saturday. 
we were having a birthday celebration with her and your uncle. Not face-to-face, -face, sadly, but using a computer and something we've all become very used to called Zoom. You're used to something much better and smoother by now, but this slightly clunky technology was how people kept in touch, talking to each other, having social times together, even meals and birthday parties. We laughed together, gabbled together, cried together, on a flat screen. Outside, we could see people taking walks, sometimes with their dog. They were all wearing a mask. When I first met you just after your birth, I was wearing a mask. Your bright little eyes couldn't actually see your grandpa's face. I had to watch you with your dad through a window. Why were we all locked down? Why were people so scared and worried? Why did people separate from each other, even their family, loved ones and friends? Well, our government made some rules for us to help protect the public health. That was what the lockdown was all about. We had to stay home mostly. Many people started working from home using their computers and the internet and shopping the same way. Both those trends have continued even after the effects of the pandemic have eased. The pandemic caused long-lasting changes to our way of life, to the fundamental ways we live in the world. Ask me more about those next time we have fun together. But you were our beautiful pandemic baby, born into a time of threat and tension and anxiety and fear. And all because of a very, very tiny organism, not even really alive, a virus that jumped from wild animals to us, then spread around the world, infecting people everywhere, killing many. Part of that story is about how we humans have destroyed wild animals and their living spaces, as if we were somehow separate from the natural world and its rightful conquerors. That's another thing for us to talk about when you want. By tiny, I mean so small, you can only see it with a special microscope. If it were the same size as us, we would be taller than the Earth's highest mountain, that small. So, dear granddaughter, you arrived amongst us at a hard time, but you immediately blessed us all with your presence, your innocence, and your daily growth, our pandemic joy. That's my letter to my granddaughter. Good job. Sorry, Peter, how old did you say she is at the moment? She's about 11 weeks now. Right, so, as you say, the same age as... As our lockdown, basically. Our pandemic baby and our lockdown baby, yes. Yeah. Uh, and all the things I anticipated feeling not so good about, they sort of came to pass, but we just had to adapt as we've adapted with everything else. So we yeah. did, and she's at last seen us, and we've, we're talking to her. And the other thing that's just stunning as a new grandfather, I've got to say, is how quickly humans grow. I mean, within a couple <laughs> of weeks, she was already... Already different, already bigger, obviously, physically, but already engaging with us. Just yesterday, she was lying under a tree in her backyard and using early babbling, you know, whoops of joy, squeals of joy, early language, already started. So we're, we're getting that great blessing of seeing how humans develop. So we're very lucky, very lucky. Congratulations. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Margot. So despite it all, we've had our, we've had our gift, haven't we? But now we've seen... All the things that are going down, it's still happening. We're gradually opening up in Melbourne, Tim. But one thing that, of course, foreshadowed by Margot just a few minutes ago was how this has been handled out in the public space, particularly around journalism. Both Margot and I were mightily impressed by the piece you wrote quite recently, just a couple of days ago, online in Patreon. And it was published also in Mianjin online magazine down here. 
about journalism and about you really drew a lot of your thinking together that you've been writing about for many years now into that piece. That's why it was so impressive, I think. Do you just want to take us through some of your general thoughts about what's been happening within the pandemic and journalism? There's been this ongoing, let's call it a debate, mainly on Twitter, I guess, where journalists and their audience have been discussing the pros and cons of the way in which the media has been reporting the pandemic. I think it's probably been particularly focused in Melbourne, largely because of the existence of the Daniel Andrews Daily Press Conference, which he's done over a hundred of those in a row now. He stands there and answers questions or responds to questions, (laughs) there's a difference, for as long as it takes. This has become a real focal point for the way in which the media has covered it. I think it's had some real strengths and it's had some real weaknesses, but it's really shown up certain aspects about, one, the relationship between media and the people that they report on, namely, in this case, the politicians, but also the relationship between the media and the people they report to. We the people, the audience, and we the people (laughs) haven't been particularly impressed with a lot of what's happened at the press conferences. There's been particular focus on a couple of News Limited journalists who have been seen to be part of a generally anti-Labor organisation in News Limited and are using the forum of the press conference to prosecute their case against Labor. And this has led to a certain level of frustration with the audience where they felt that their interests as an audience were being usurped by whatever News Limited's agenda was against the Andrews Labor government, so that the wrong sorts of questions were being asked as far as a lot of people were concerned. So they weren't getting the information they wanted. I I think this caused a, a reaction back the other way. A lot of journalists have pointed out that there's been a lot of partisanship in the response against their questions, where... Andrews is forgiven every transgression that he makes and is seen as somehow untouchable. People point to the I stand with Dan hashtag as evidence of this. And there's a lot of talk about Dan stands, you know, um, rusted on fans of Dan Andrews. And I think there's some truth in that, that that pushback has gone too far. It has become partisan rather than engaged. My argument in the piece was, as much as the press conferences has has been a flashpoint, you can't see it outside of the context of the changing relationship between audience and media that has happened over the last 20 years. But the media, with certain glowing exceptions, including the person we're sharing airtime with here today, I don't think they've ever adapted to the change in that relationship that they have with the audience that has come apart because of the web, because of digitisation. One of the arguments I make in the the piece is that news is no longer something that is just created by journalists independently of and for their audience. It is, because of social media, it is created in conjunction with the audience. So you have to build that public space together 
And this requires a very different, flatter, less hierarchical relationship between audience and media. My very strong feeling is that most journalists, most media organisations haven't made that adjustment. They still see it as, to use a term that you've used, Peter, they still see it as a bit of a priesthood. They still see it as an exclusive club. We still talk about insiders, for instance. Not only do they do their best to exclude the audience from that creation, that shared understanding of the political scene, but they actually resent the intrusion by the audience into that space. You get some very senior journalists saying some very silly and aggressive things directed at what they tend to call the Twitterati, which is this dismissive term for anybody who dares to engage with the journalism that they do. I think the Daniel Andrews press conferences kind of brought that 20-year discussion to a head in a way that probably nothing else has. And so the piece was really a reaction to all of that. So you're really talking about a co-creation there, aren't you, Tim? And I I use that communication theory phraseology about one-to-many and many-to-many. We live in a many-to-many world, a digital cyber world now, but a lot of the journos still seem to be very locked into the one-to-many and how dare you question me. They seem to be tending the sacred flame and the priesthood of certainty and truth. And and there has been that sort of circling the wagons effect too that you and I have discussed in the past. Well, I, I backed Baxendale. I mean, I, I backed her. She's a reporter for the Oz. There is circling the wagons here. There is. She asked a series of accountability questions, a series of aggressive accountability questions, which, as usual, Dan Andrews did not answer. The fact is Twitterati is where people engaged in politics try and pressure each other. It's very intense. People in power are being watched all the time. And along with that comes disinformation and partisanship and all the rest of it. I just follow lists. I don't bother with stupid people. I follow people of both sides. And that's how I find out about the rubbish going on in the net. There's two issues. One is that journalists aren't supposed to be popular. We are supposed to hold... Mission um, accomplished. Well, you know, hear me out. We are supposed to hold political journalists, all journalists, business journalists, police journalists, hold powerful people to account no matter what party, no matter what colour. And I've done that in my career and... All good journalists have done that in Korea. Now, naturally, you're going to be hated by the other side. I was hated by Labor when I did relentless journalism about Ros Kelly's whiteboard. The big issue for me is Peter Credlin. What right did she have to come into that room? She is not a journalist. She does not obey ethical codes. How do you choose who comes in? And this is, you know, very, it's extremely important in America because you've got ultra-partisan propaganda saying they're media. The kicker with it is she asked the bloody right question. I mean, it almost sound, seemed as though the, the inquiry was covering it up. They didn't ask for the phone records. She asked for the phone records, and that has led to serious accountability from the chief medical officer. So, I mean, journalists have got two problems. One, they've got to define who a journalist is. And secondly, they've got to be serious in their questioning. I'm a lawyer. If I was still in that press gallery, that's one of the first things I would have asked. What's happened to the expertise? I think the age has done extremely well in this under great pressure since Daniel Andrews is very, um, very popular. And I'm very proud of the age that they stuck to accountability because that's our job. End of rave. (laughs) In summary, I think Tim's piece is absolutely crucially important. And I hope that through this pod and, and maybe other forums, we can really get a serious discussion 
between journalists. I did a Twitter storm on this, right? So I copied the MEAA and saying, as far as I'm concerned, the definition of a journalist is someone who complies with the, co the code of ethics. It doesn't matter if you work or you don't work. And they retweeted it. And I thought, well, come on, Media Alliance, you know, get into the, get into the effing game here. Start stating the case. Then people say, oh, well, you know, you just want unions. No, I, I think there should be a professional association of journalists. And if you're in the Media Alliance, you're automatically qualified because you have to comply with the Code Alliance. You should not be able to say you're a journalist unless you comply with the Code of Ethics because you are being misleading. Blah. <laughs> Full disclosure, your sister Gail Corn is now the editor of The Age. I think we should mention that. Yes, I don't discuss The Age in general because of that. I shouldn't talk about The Age, but obviously it's had a lot of problems. But I think in this area, they really came through. My sister's appointment was a great day for journalism. And I think journalists across the spectrum and so many other people in, in public life were just thrilled that a reporter-led editor has chosen to take the risk to come back to a dying institution and give it another go. And I'm extremely proud of her and I'm extremely hopeful for the age. But I shouldn't talk about it, so no more, okay? <laughs> and, Margot, I don't think either of us would disagree with that general theory of journalism, public interest journalism, holding politicians and leaders and the people who govern us to account. And that's certainly true with Daniel Andrews and the complete stuff up with the hotel quarantine, which we still haven't got clear answers about. Can I say one more thing? We've got America and Britain and Australia has got the effing Murdoch problem. Is that they don't comply with that. They'll, they'll chase after one side and not the other. Who can forget that AWU endless stream of garbage on, on Julia, Julia Gillard. So Murdoch has now taken his media to the brink of not being considered media. Very interesting in America that Trump's people tried to sell that heap of Biden garbage to the Wall Street Journal and there was a split. The news side wouldn't run it because they've got a reputation to uphold and so the comment side run it and then the news side says, all right, well, we'll fact check this and say it's bullshit. They couldn't get it anywhere. They ended up going to the, the New York Post, his, his tabloid rag, and then blew everyone up for saying this isn't a story and we're not, we're not going to let you subvert the election. I mean, the Murdoch stuff is, is very, very crucial. Um, it's all very well having a news side at Fox, but um, it, it is completely overwhelmed with garbage propaganda comment. And we've got to the stage now in America where there are two realities and there are no common facts. And it's the most frightening thing I've ever seen in a democracy. And I would just like to put on record that I fully support Kevin Rudd's Royal Commission. And I urge everyone who can to go to the Australian parliamentary site and to sign the petition. Tim, you know I've been very critical of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation news service as well. I'm not seeing that even-handed, rigorous, equal opportunity according to account in ABC output at the moment. I'm seeing very uneven questioning of, of political leaders by the likes of David Spears, for example, to name a name on the Insiders program. I'm seeing it with Lee Sales. I'm certainly seeing it with people like Michael Rowland on the Breakfast program. So the ABC in my opinion, and I'm happy to justify it with cases, and perhaps we will in future podcasts, I think the ABC is going through a very rough patch as well. I think the ABC is going through a glorious patch. They've lost their way a little bit along the way, but they are, they are fact-based, they are in-depth, and they're doing the work, and they are trusted by the Australian people. And that is the reason the government wants to defund it. The ABC is what is standing between us and American truth chaos. And Scott Morrison and his band of whatever they are, 
want to close that down because it is a challenge to their attempt to subvert democracy and get everything for themselves and their donors. That's how bitter I am at the moment. The ABC is absolutely crucial to the survival of this democracy. They've been absolutely crucial in the coronavirus issue because the vast majority of Australians trust them. Why? Because they are accountable because you can complain and there are consequences. And if they make a mistake, they are duty bound to correct it. This is crucial, absolutely crucial. So they're going through a great patch and that's why the government is trying to destroy them, in my opinion. Okay, the, we're going to have that argument further down the track, I think, because I've got cases to show you. And I, I, of course, support the ABC. I've worked there for years. And also, yes, they want to defund them. And I think they're on the, the campaign trail to get rid of the ABC at the moment. But they've got to justify yeah. They've got to justify that by their actual daily journalistic practice. So let's put that off. I'm happy to have that big argument with you. My answer is bushfires. My answer is bushfires. They were extraordinary. They were great during the bushfires on the whole. Yeah, I think they were. Tim, it wasn't so long ago that we saw the Prime Minister Scott Morrison stand up and say, we're all Melburnians now. But of course, that journalism, the News Corp journalism we've been talking about, echoes the very partisan approach to Daniel Andrews, putting aside the hotel quarantine stuff up, the continual attacks. You talked about I stand with Dan. Of course, we had the dictator Dan meme as well as the mirror image mm. of that. Daniel Andrews has copped it from the likes of Tim Wilson and Josh Frydenberg, both Victorian politicians, Scott Morrison himself. Remember back to when we talked about Dan Tian and his go about schools, which has proven to be a, a bit of a foul blow. Now that we look at schools more. Palaszczuk up in Queensland facing an election hasn't copped it as much, but still copped it a bit. Mark McGowan, Western Australia, with his closed borders, has only had the odd sally against him. Of course, South Australia, Tasmania, hardly at all. Much the same sort of policies. So what do you make of all that, Tim? It's what you say, that once the second wave hit Victoria, the Morrison government seemed to make a decision that any attempt at bipartisanship that may have been coming through with the national cabinet was over. And I guess they just saw that there was maybe some political mileage to be made out of the fact that a Labor state was going through what we went through. Josh Frydenberg in particular, I guess because he's Victorian, seemed to be sent out a number of times to do set pieces, which were, including in Parliament, it's pretty much attack dog mode. And blaming Victoria for the deficit virtually. Yeah, there, there's been a, been a lot of that. I think it's partly about deflecting attention from their own shortcomings. We know, for example, that one of the big areas that caused the outbreak in Melbourne was aged care that was under federal control rather than state control. It's partly about deflecting attention from their own responsibility for different things. In fact, it's kind of difficult to figure out what the federal government are actually doing at the moment in response to coronavirus. It all seems to have devolved to a state level. Maybe that's a good thing, but I think it then becomes incumbent on the, the federal government not to attack state governments on, on a partisan basis. Palaszczuk up in Queensland has copped a heap from absolutely um, from the Liberal Premier in New South Wales and from the Liberal Prime Minister in Canberra, uh, particularly around the borders. The Courier-Mail has been their usual anti-Labor thing, including the debate that they organised last night. I don't know if you saw their write-ups of that, but, you know, all the they had audience voting on it who pretty comprehensively 
scored the debate as a win for Palaszczuk, but the Courier-Mail this morning, all the reporting on it was, well, yeah, the, the people might have scored it for that, but actually she lost. They kind of just rewrite it. it. It's not a huge thing, I guess, but it's it's fairly typical of the bias. We talk about News Limited being biased, or we talk about Peter Credlin showing up pretending to be a journalist. News Limited is the biggest media organisation yep. yep. in the country. You know, they, they control about 70% of print journalism for a start. Then there's Sky. And, and yeah, and as Margot quite rightly pointed out, Murdoch has taken the organisation to the brink of not being journalism. In an Australian context, that is a huge thing. It means the majority of our media is not really fulfilling its civic function anymore. So I think even good journalists within that organisation and certainly journalists in other organisations, when people get cross at the media, you have to understand that it's in that context and that the people getting cross have got a case. When the biggest media organisation in the country is going towards not doing journalism, but doing whatever it is that they do, the sort of partisanship that they do, not only does the audience have a right to get angry about that and to push back against that, against the industry in general, they've got an obligation to. If you want to have an engaged democratic citizenry, part of our job, if you like, in that respect, in that role, is to stand up to that sort of bias that exists in the media. I kind of disagree with Margot a bit about Baxendale overall. I agree that she's done some good stuff. There's been other journalists that have been doing good stuff in terms of accountability, but you can't see her as independent from the organisation from which she works. And it's completely reasonable of people to see, even when a journalist is doing good work, to understand it in that broader context of the Murdoch media, which is clearly not fulfilling its role as a civic organisation. If we're talking accountability yep. too, I would, have, I would have liked to have seen a lot more close questioning about the pandemic itself, about the virus, about their decisions, about what were the underpinnings of a lot of what we went through with the lockdown, etc. And I did see some journalists attempting that, and Andrews was hard a hard man to penetrate on some of that. He had his he had his formulae to deflect from that. I just think in terms of public interest journalism, yes, the accountability. I would have liked to have seen a lot more accountability around aged care and the federal responsibility, as you just alluded to. And I would like to see a lot more accountability about the secrecy of our cabinet, about what's going on with the National Cabinet, what's going on with the COVID Commission headed up by Nev Power, well larded with resources executives sitting there making all sorts of decisions with another cloak of secrecy over the top of them under the guise of COVID. All that's going on at the moment at the federal level, Tim. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And I, I think there's a real case to be made at the moment that they're taking advantage of the situation, even the last budget. And a number of good journalists have written about this. It's, it's not as if it's not being taken up in the media, but it is becoming a government for mates. You know, they have their favourites, not just in particular industries, but within those industries, they have their favourites and they seem to be rewarded. And of course, one of the one of the mates is Murdoch and, and he's constantly rewarded. He's not the mate, he's the boss. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Oh, I, I, think, I think that's right. I just don't see 
why any journalist would be surprised that the engaged part of the audience would not be aware of all of this and would be kicking up a stink about it. But instead, I think a lot of them get upset when people point those things out. Tim, you know... And get a bit snippy. There are many very good journalists in the Murdoch stable. And basically... But it doesn't matter, Mark. I don't care. No, 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 I I know, I know. But they want to survive and they need to survive, so they close themselves off and and all the rest of it. And um, I just think that in an industry where there are no reasonably paying jobs, you know, to have more than half of our industry in a space where they have to be careful and they know they won't do certain stories and they know if they do, there'll be trouble and all that sort of stuff... I really feel for them. I, I remember, do you remember Rick Morton? He was a social affairs writer at yeah, the sure, Oz, of course, And he, yeah. he actually gave what he, he thought would just be a between you and us interview, I suppose, on a, a community radio show saying, you know, we have a lot of problems with this. We talk about it all the time. We try and protect the journalism, et cetera. And of course, he immediately went to the Saturday paper. You know, he had no future in Murdoch. I mean, there's there's yeah. no transparency at all. Like, remember the, the executive who wrote a, an email saying, you know, I, I cannot in conscience continue working for an organisation yeah. that, um, that denies climate change. And she was, that was, that was it. It's quite closed. It's almost sort of like the Kremlin or something. They hold yeah. everyone else accountable and that no one can ask anything of them if they're game. And if they do, they'll just get up and up yours. What they'll get, which fr- it happened to friends of mine in the past, like Meg Simons, when she was, she and, and I and a lot of other people were pushing for that bit of media regulation under, um, yeah. uh, under Labor, the Finkelstein Review yeah. or whatever, they actually started stalking her at work. They started coming to her yeah. home. She's got two kids. The pieces they wrote were vicious and evil and ugly yeah. and false. It is, yeah, it is exactly. a mafia-like organisation. So, I mean, what a great partnership in America. Mafia media and a mafia president. Wow. <laughs> No, exactly. I just say that I I feel very, very badly for journalists in that position. And there are many of them that do their bloody best and they do good work regardless. So here's me circling the wagons again a little bit. I don't think anybody denies that. But like I said, it's also not the point. It's like saying, you know, like in the, say, the Labor government in New South Wales, there were good people in the Labor government. I mean, who cares? The, the, The basic thing is that it was corrupt. And I think you've got the same issue with the Murdoch thing. It's a structural thing. It's not about the individuals. It's about the institution. And and that's where the focus should be. My big picture point from this, and I I know it'll never get anywhere or whatever, and I know journalism isn't really a profession, right? But let's call it a profession. The thing about professions is that they have independent power because they have ethical codes and they're accountable to the Solicitor Association, Architecture Association, Accountants Association, etc. They have a bit of power within an organisation. With journalists, there's never been any power, really. I mean, we got a little bit through the the media alliance. Like if you're, you know, if you're asked to disobey your ethics and and you know you don't care about ever getting a promotion again, you can go to the media alliance and they can protect your job, sort of thing. We've got a bit of an investigative power in the media alliance, but not, not much. Basically, to call yourself a journalist is you are saying you have ethics. That's the only reason why people would trust you and talk to you. But the fact is the public doesn't believe that we're ethical or they believe that, yes, some of us are ethical, but our bosses won't, our bosses will crunch us. Sorry this is overused, but it is an existential crisis for journalism. There is absolutely no doubt about it. You know, Trump is letting every fringe gateway pundit and OAN into his 
press conferences and only asking them questions. I mean, the fundamental right of journalists to be there in the room with the powerful to ask the questions is, is under severe threat. Now with social media, they do their direct videos and their Twitters and their this and their that. I can see a time coming in my, my nightmares that basically politicians don't put themselves out for journalist questions anymore. So we have got to make our role so important that the public insists that we ask questions. At the moment, there's no chance of that. We're in trouble. And best exemplified probably most recently by the dummy spitting by Donald Trump with Leslie Stoll in the 60 Minutes interview, which smacked to me of being pre-planned, that walkout that he did. But he'd used terminology to oh, her like, yeah. he used terminology to her like, you asked inappropriate questions. You know, my blood ran cold when I heard that yeah. sort of language. And he, he went on Hannity and he said, this debates commission's hopeless. They never put up fair and balanced people like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson. Like, yeah. There we are. There we are. And you've got two worlds in America. I mean, I don't know about you, but I am absolutely like frightened that more than 40% of Americans support Trump. Like he's not in it for any of them. And he's killing like, you know, but, but there you go. There's, that's what the silos create. And God help us if we ever get that in Australia. Obviously, Murdoch wants it. And all we've got to protect us is our ABC. You're in the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark with Tim Dunlop and Margot Kingston. Our email address is transitzonepod at gmail.com. We love receiving your feedback, we really do, and your questions and your thematic ideas for these Transit Zone podcasts. And if you enjoy them, let your friends know on social media. Tim and Margot, we know that Donald Trump and Joe Biden are out on the campaign trail at the moment in Nebraska, in Omaha, Nebraska. This is what Donald Trump said. We will vanquish the vaccine and we will get rid of this whole thing. We will get rid of this virus. It'll be very, you watch, it's going to happen very quickly and we're going to have our country back and the whole world is going to be coming back. This was a terrible, terrible thing that happened. Omaha was this great case where the, the hangar was, was a long way out of town, right? So Trump orders buses to bring people there, right? He lands in his yeah. plane, he says his thing, flies off. There's no buses, there's people having heart attacks, there's the cops wondering they're in the freezing cold, so you've got a super spreader and a, and a leaving behind. Like, how better to exemplify Trump's lack of confidence and lack of care for the forgotten people he pretends to represent? There you go. There you go. You're not the only one to see that just leaving them stranded in the freezing cold as a metaphor for his whole relationship with his cult. So as we've been traversing in our discussion today in this first episode in season two of Transit Zone, we're seeing an extraordinary set of parallel universes in the United States at the moment. That denialism, that muscular denialism, Tim, of the truth that I'm using the word truth about COVID and the increasing numbers of infections, the the hospitals that are just being overwhelmed yet again, we're seeing ICUs running at 90% capacity at the moment. Winter's not even upon them. All the things that have been warned about, the denigration of Fauci, all that's been going on, the politicization of the CDC, the Centers for Infectious Diseases, the FDA and the rushing through of a vaccine, talking about a vaccine as if it's gonna be available next week, all that stuff that's been going on. Those two realities, Tim, it's just extraordinary what we're seeing in the United States with just, as we record this podcast, under a week to go to election day. It's not about democracy anymore. Even the election isn't about democracy anymore. It's turned into 
something else, the country. The Republican Party is some sort of permanent power base within most of the structures of government. As I say, it's not about democracy anymore. We know full well that the big issue next Tuesday in America is that he can lose the vote but win the election. They're going to be able to manipulate the result either through suppression of of people voting in the first place or through rigging the courts and forcing various decisions into the court system that they see as favourable to them. And then even then, even if through all of that somehow Joe Biden wins, which is, you know, is still possible if enough Americans get out and vote, but even then you've still got mechanisms like the filibuster in the Senate, which gives the minority incredible power. So So even if the Democrats sweep the House and the presidency and the Senate, the minority remains incredibly powerful, partly because of the the use of the filibuster. So even if Trump loses and loses convincingly, they're a long way from back to anything like a normal democracy. The corruption has been setting in for decades. Trump, in very many ways, is the logical outcome rather than the cause of the sort of anti-democratic thing that America has become, just getting rid of him isn't enough. It's about root and branch change. Is the country capable of that sort of change? Is any country capable of that sort of change? I mean, I think we're all kind of living on tenterhooks at the moment. Because, I mean, it could be it could actually become quite violent next week. If, if it's a close result, especially in different states and different districts, you know, violence is almost inevitable over there. It could blow up into something even bigger than just kind of localised violence. It could become much more general than that. You know, and to be talking in those terms at all is kind of scary because, you know, it, it really is a case of they're still the most powerful nation on the planet. And if they go pear-shaped, it's going to affect everyone. You can look at it in all sorts of ways, like save the planet and save democracy and save this, save the world, you know. But basically, you know, really big picture seems to me and I think most people that we're headed into a, a, a new Cold War with China. But China has, has planned very well and now believes that it is able to flex its muscles because it's got the power. And if we want to try and save a, a, a rules-based order and, and free world values, we have to be led. And there's only one country that can lead us. And if they throw away those values, God knows what happens to us in Australia. We are squeezed. It seems to me that the system has failed so badly in so many ways that there's a a solid group of, of people who go, nothing will change, they're all fucked, so let's be entertained in a giant reality show where our boy, created by the mainstream media, which decided to do a show promoting the the lie that he was a good businessman. We watch a show where everyone we hate gets upset. We have now an American reality show that because of its consequences, it is now a world reality show. And Donald Trump has always got what he desperately needs. And you can run any psycho babble you like, but his metric is audience. And he has the whole world watching him. He has already won. He has a cult that adores him, that blesses him, that says he's the return of God. He has won. People who are hoping to see his face when he loses, I mean, stop it. You know, stop it. He's already won and it is the job of the majority of the people in the nation 
to do the equivalent of a, of, a, of a new deal. And that requires compromise. I've come to think after strongly opposing Biden for a long time that he is the one person left who is capable of brokering that. Obviously, we're seeing a realignment, which is, is basically, in Australian terms, moderate liberals, smaller liberals coming across to, to Labor and working class and, and small business people, but mainly working class and workers going across to Trump. What that means, I don't know, but we've got the same thing happening here. There were swings to Labor in blue ribbon liberal moderate seats and there were swings to the liberals in Labor seats. We can try and learn from what America's done and fix up our system before it gets to dangerous levels. No doubt about it. Murdoch has been a huge factor in bringing this to dangerous levels, reality TV show levels, two truths levels, and he's trying his darndest to do it here. Tim, you talked about some of those structural reforms, and I reckon the first thing to go has got to be the Electoral College, surely. It's effectively made 50 separate state elections, 9,000 counties across that great nation, each running their own separate little election, hence all the shambolic actual voting mechanics we see. It distorts not only the outcome with the popular vote, Trump, for example, in 2016 and probably next time being able to win, but also distorts utterly the campaigning and, and how they actually go about that act of democracy and talking about visions and policies and all the rest of it. Totally distorted because they're just hammering away at, at swing states and swing counties in most cases. So the Electoral College is a terrible leftover, isn't it, from from the foundation of the Republic and where they didn't really trust the mob at that point. The founders argued over that right up to the last gasp. It had to do a lot with state power and all the rest of it, but no longer useful, obviously, for that Republic, and it's a mess. If they can get rid of the Electoral College and or have states come to some sort of pact whereby they accept the majority popular vote for their particular state when they have their delegates. Because what you've got at the moment is if it's a winner takes all, isn't it? A particular state might be split almost down the middle. If the Republican presidential candidate wins it, the rest are disenfranchised, just like that. And that's the great tragedy, isn't it, of the Electoral College? The Electoral College and the filibuster are both an example of a concern that was at the heart of the foundation of the American nation, which was whilst you wanted to have a free people who were self-governing, in other words, a democracy, the founding fathers certainly also wanted to protect against what they tended to call, you know, the tyranny of the majority. Because we use voting as a way of deciding issues, but the principle underlying it is that Even in that situation where a majority wins the vote, you protect the rights of those who didn't vote for you. So in this country, a prime minister is elected to govern on behalf of everybody, not just for the people who voted for him. The Electoral College and the filibuster were both mechanisms inserted into their institutions as a way of protecting against that tyranny of the majority. But I think there's a, as you say, there's a pretty solid case that it's no longer really fulfilling that role. Either the Electoral College or the filibuster are fulfilling that role. The Senate in particular, because of the nature of its representation, where small states have exactly the same number of representatives in the House, in the Senate, as as the big states, means that, you know, there's an incredible imbalance in terms of representation that, you know, North Dakota gets the same representation in the Senate as California, and it's whatever it is, 
2 million people versus 20 million people sort of thing with the same number of senators. And then on top of that, you throw in something like the filibuster, which requires a three-fifth majority to get through certain, well, most legislation these days. It puts a huge advantage in the hands of the minority sort of thing. You're, you're almost overcoming the very nature of majority rule. It's not a tyranny of the majority. It's kind of a tyranny of the minority. Something has to be done about that. Biden's been a bit hesitant about saying that he'll get rid of the filibuster, but it was interesting the other day, Obama came out openly and referred to the filibuster as as a hangover from Jim Crow days. Um, he used to support it very strongly. He didn't want to get rid of it when he was president, but he, he's come out now and said that it's probably time for it to go. To me, it seems like it's a really crucial crucial test of a Biden administration if we get to that point and everything you know goes as well as it can go, in that the people who will have put Biden there, civil rights organisations, especially amongst the black community, things like Black Lives Matter, and they absolutely want to see the filibuster got rid of because they are the ones who are really the victims of it because the GOP are using that position to be able to block civil rights legislation going through. And that constituency of the Democratic Party is really not going to put up with that if Biden's in power. So I think that'll be an early and major test of where Biden goes. We're also hearing people like Mike Lee, a GOP senator, talking about we're not a democracy, we're a constitutional republic. That tired old line is being trotted out again right. a lot. Joe Biden's not only been a little bit opaque about the filibuster, but also, of course, about expanding the Supreme Court. If the filibuster was abolished in Trump's term, that they would have lost Obamacare. That's the fear, of course. It's OK for us to do it, but what about when they, they come in? I agree with Tim that if, if they don't come at civil rights you know, and voting rights, you, you've got to drop the filibuster. But what Biden would be trying desperately to do, and I think the only way that will save the country, as I said before, is by, is by getting buy-in from some Republicans. And the Republicans have basically lost suburban women. They've lost them. If Biden wins, it will be because of a, a realignment of moderate GOP voters to Biden. So in the long term, the way to protect their constituencies, if you've got to abolish the filibuster, is to find some level of agreement on basic things. And, and I hope the left gives Biden the chance to get some of those people, because otherwise you can see, you know, the Democrats put in a radical agenda and why wouldn't they? And then what happened to Barack Obama in the midterms? He got completely crushed and back it comes. And America is in a state where it's like that and it's not going to go anywhere unless something is is released. So, yeah, look, if they have to abolish the filibuster, I would fear for, fear for America. The Electoral College, I... I sort of have some disagreement with it's it's sort of it's like our senate you know Tassie gets 12 senators and New South Wales gets gets 12 things are so volatile and there is so much realignment going like imagine like it's not going to happen but it is not outside the bounds of possibility that Biden could bring Texas what's the big population center that that grounds the the Democrats California what's the big state that grounds the Republicans Texas these things can change quite quickly I suppose my only defence of the state space system or whatever, it's in a way America's different countries 
And unless you find a way to balance that, it's already had one civil war. I'm just a little little less aggressive than some about um, mucking around with the Electoral College and the filibuster, if at all possible. And the Electoral College I'd keep because anything can happen. I've got the Sunbelt trending, trending quite hard blue. The fact is that whichever party wants to govern, they have to find an accommodation among 50 vastly disparate states. Some are French-based, some are English, some are German. The cultural mix and the, the history mix with slavery and so on is just huge. That's all I've got to say on it. It's almost a wrap on our first episode for season two, Tim and Margot. I'm going to put the weights on both of you. Tim first, what do you think? Who's going to win this election? <laughs> uh, pregnant pause. <laughs> Look, I honestly don't know. Here's what I think. Undoubtedly, Biden gets more votes. Whether that translates into him winning the election, as it should, but whether it does, that's what's up for grabs, and I can't call that. Margot? I think it's important for America and the free world that Biden wins well. I think a, a close win for Biden would be just terrible Forget because it, Trump, yeah. Trumpism would remain. A close win by Trump, well, there you go. I choose to believe that the American people will make the right choice and elect Biden substantially. However, I don't think anyone really has any faith in the wisdom of the American people at all. In the last debate, Biden said something about transitioning from the oil industry and everyone went crazy and he's going to lose Pennsylvania. And, and I sort of tweeted to a couple of journalists saying, well, he's just stating the obvious, isn't it? That's how you address climate change, but no. And also this challenge to a reality about COVID. He is saying... Be strong. What he's saying is herd immunity, people will die, but do it for me and do it for do it for the kleptocracy and, and you know, whatever. His push is to basically get a hundred percent turnout among his supporters and he's got um, grassroots organizations on the ground signing people up. You notice all the registrations. It's a very big movement, the Trump movement. I'd believe anything, but I believe that Biden will win well. Okay, I've been going through the polls obsessively, and my mind <laughs> says, yes, Biden's in a very good position. But I've also taken account of the wide extent of voter suppression in the United States. It's just so muscular yeah, and so yeah. extensive. And there's that unknown area that we just can't put our fingers on at this stage, that polling doesn't even begin to pick up. And also, I'm very aware that it is coming down to those couple of swing states. I'm aware of what you said about Texas, and that'll be very interesting to watch. But I'm going to go, for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to go with a Trump shit show from November the 3rd. I think, particularly if it's yeah. close, I think it's going to be a shit show. And we could find ourselves in front of Amy in the Supreme Court with all sorts of decisions. It could be an echo of the Gore Bush thing from the, the hanging chads in Florida. It could be Florida again, even. So... Okay, I'm going to protect my sanity by saying, so I'm going pessimist, I'm going to go for a Trump win. We'll see what happens next week. Okay. And, and since, America's, since America has become a reality show, basically the decision is, have you had enough or you want to see what happens next season? So, <laughs> I, you know, a lot of people have had enough and a lot of people have gone, wow, this is really good entertainment. And gee, the, gee, we're really, we're really fucking over those elites that hate us. And okay, <laughs> vote him out, guys, vote him out. <laughs> 
Vote him off the show. You're fired. Uh, the tribe has spoken. Yeah, the tribe has spoken. <laughs> okay, Jim, we've had a couple of months to really get amongst the, the Netflix and the TV and read some books and listen to some good podcasts and music. What have you been doing? As I said to you the other day, I think I finished Netflix. <laughs> we've watched, watched so many things, not just Netflix, of course. I don't know, maybe it just suited the times really well, but I really enjoyed the six, I think it is, seasons of Shit's Creek, which is largely a Canadian show with Daniel and Eugene Levy in uh, lead roles and writing, producing and directing, etc. I just think it's hilarious. It just cheered me up no end during that period. It was, they're very bite-sized pieces. They're like 30-minute, not even 30-minute episodes, so you can easily get through two or maybe 15 in an evening. And, um, and, and, and we certainly did that and, and enjoyed it a lot. The thing that I'm watching at the moment actually is re-watching a series from a few years ago called Battlestar Galactica, which is actually a remake and it's suitably apocalyptic for these times. The earth gets blown up and a 40,000 humans managed to escape in spaceships and, and travel the universe looking for somewhere else to live. It seems surprisingly accurate. It, it's, it's brilliantly done in that the life on the ships becomes the politics of the world. It's extremely well done. For just mindless escapism, you can't really go past Shit's Creek, I don't think. But if you want to really depress yourself, Battlestar Galactica is not a bad choice, actually. Margot. Is Shit's Creek on, on Netflix? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, a couple of people have recommended I'm going to, after November 3 or whatever it is, um, I'm, I'm not going to ever look at US politics again. And I think I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll transition through Shit's Creek. So basically, um, podcasts, US politics podcasts for me. I've tried a lot of them, and I think I've basically come down to four. Okay. Two are Never Trump spin-offs from the Weekly Standard and um, National Review, the Dispatch podcast and Advisory Opinions and the Bulwark podcast with Charlie Sykes, they are blacker than any Democrat. They know why they're, they're advocating for Biden and they've got the value thing lined up. They are very rigorous in their, in their facts. They're really entertaining. I really like them. For the Democrat side, Pod Save America, it's an amazing outfit they built. You know, three former Obama bros set up a media company and are basically talking to Democrats, activists and supporters around the country. They're discussing um, strategy. They're speaking to people on the ground who are doing stuff. They've got accounts to help vote save America and everything. They're quite funny, in a, you know, Democrat, Metro sort of male sort of way. Uh, and I just find it really useful. So those three I find useful for the, the politics and what's happening, etc. And for the nerdy thing, I've tried and failed to avoid 538. It's very nerdy, Nate Silver, and you get the ins and outs of the polls and the politics and the this and that. So, so they're the four I've, right. I've settled on and, and I'd recommend in the, in the lead up to, uh, to next week. I can only join Tim in the Schitt's Creek adulation. Um, we binged on the whole thing. I love the Canadian comedy sensibility. Also, the aesthetic is just brilliant. Dan Levy, who's the son of Eugene Levy, also in the show. And, of course, Catherine O'Hara as Moira and Annie Murphy as Alexis, the daughter. As you probably realise already, uh, Margot, it's about a very rich family who's suddenly, in a moment, down on their luck and have to move to Schitt's Creek and bunk out in a very dilapidated old motel. It's very character-driven. It's not punchline-driven, it's character-driven, and it's very amusing. 
I'll go there. I'll go there. You'll love it. And uh, also, of course, it's got a bit of a pedigree because of Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, the Christopher Guest movies like Best in Show and those sort of movies, which are sort of mockumentaries, and it's got that sort of feel about it as well. Brilliant stuff, and you'll love it. And they are short, so you can binge out two, three, four a night. We did. (laughs) Reading a bit of history at the moment to try and get my head straight about United States history. Jill Lepore, who's a writer for the New Yorker, of course, but also a Harvard historian. These Truths, her history of the United States, worth a read. Few things that are causing my eyebrows to raise about her take on a few things, but nevertheless, it's, it's a very good read about the United States, adding layers of understanding to me. Talking of something to watch, My Teacher the Octopus is stunning, absolutely stunning. The story of this guy, a healing journey, diving in a kelp forest, or snorkeling actually, in a kelp forest off the west coast of South Africa. He forms a relationship with a common octopus, not a very big octopus. It's just amazing. It's visually amazing, but psychologically okay. amazing about this octopus who actually makes contact with a human being. We all think of them as like aliens. They're actually very intelligent creatures with great eyesight and all the rest of it. That is really worth looking at and you'll you'll come away from that one uh, a slightly changed person I think so that's really worth checking out as well can I say something about next week yes yes we've got Helen Haynes on the independent member for Indi who um, has introduced a, a bill for a federal ICAC early this week and who is is trying to get it called on for the debate uh, next month so we're going to ask her about the state of play what the politics is like and most importantly what can people do because it's the people that want an ICAC. Labor doesn't want an ICAC. Um, the coalition will do anything not to have an ICAC for obvious reasons. So here we've got an independent elected by a coalition of red, green, yellow and blue voters to do the people's work. They're having a go. There's long odds. The only way to do it is to put pressure on your local member. I've got all sorts of ideas. Everyone's got all sorts of ideas. Go to Helen Haynes' webpage, get yourself um, backgrounded. And I think you'll have a really interesting listen next week. You took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) That will be an important and timely conversation next in the Transit Zone, so please don't miss that. Thanks, Tim. Great to see you back in the zone again. Thank you, Peter. Good to see you, Margot. Thanks, Margot. Bye. I was a bit ravey Mm. today, wasn't I? My excuse is it's been a long time. It's been more than two months, and I've really missed you guys, and I've really missed discussing what's happening. I'm so glad to be back. So forgive the rave and I promise I'll be very normal next week. Okay. (laughs) As I said earlier here in the zone, don't forget our email address here in the transit zone. We love reading and we really do value your feedback. It gives us ideas. Even if you want to tell us off, please do. The email address is transitzonepod at gmail.com. Repeating, transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia, with Margot Kingston, now living near Wingham on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, a lovely part of the world, and Tim Dumlop, also here in Melbourne. We're almost out of the lockdown. We look forward to welcoming you back soon, right here in the Transit Zone. Bye. You are now leaving the Transit Zone.